1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you
0: use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your
2: confidence journey today with Byte.
3: Welcome, everyone, to the Cynical Podcast special 10 year anniversary interactive podcast. We began life in April 2010 in Beijing, and for the first six years, it was. Just something that Jeremy and me did for fun. Uh, it's no less fun now, of course, but as you probably know, for the last four years, we've been powered by our friends at SupChina. And while we're delighted to have you all here, if you aren't already signed up for our SupChina Access newsletter, uh, go sign up right now and use the Seneca 10 discount code for 25% off on your subscription, whether a month or a full year. It is a feast, as we say, of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from, as some of you can see from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, joining me from the Oval Office is Jeremy Goldcorn, who's still trying to get that pesky rule about uh, natural-born Americans, you know, as qualifications for the presidency changed so he has a shot. Sorry, man. Uh, I, you know, you have my vote, uh, if it's any consolation you would have my vote. gold
0: GoldCorn 2024
3: <laughs> <laughs> you guys all in all right um yeah. so we're just going to wing things here today uh let's go basically off script um riff on things if the spirit moves us and, and take questions from the feed as they pop up but there are a couple of things that i wanted to do with you jeremy and maybe one of them is just to talk through a little bit about you know what it's been like uh for the last 10 years just doing the podcast uh what has changed for us from those boozy evenings that we so enjoyed uh, back at pop-up Chinese compared to this ultra slick, you know, media startup from New York that we now work for? Uh, what has been lost? Uh, what has been gained for the show? Um, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the big picture in China. You know, what's changed in China over the last 10 years? Uh, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? Okay. Well, do you want to kick us off with a specific question? Well, no, I mean, let's just riff. I mean, talk about those boozy evenings back in, I mean, those, we used to record in a decidedly grotty studio that was opened by this guy named Dave Lancashire, who was running a a uh, a service called Pop-Up Chinese. And many of you probably remember that uh, they were teaching Chinese language. And so Jeremy was the one actually had the brilliant idea of approaching Dave. And seeing whether we could sort of piggyback on the work that he was already doing, and he was extremely generous about that. You know, no money had to change hands. We just had to show up with a guest and with some ideas for what to talk about. And he usually had the refrigerator stocked with beer, and uh, we just went to it. Right? I mean,
0: yeah, fun that's times. right. And uh, he generously also produced uh, uh, the podcast for many years. Um, you know, he did the the audio editing. Um, so it was very easy for us to start the podcast and uh, to continue doing it. And, uh, you know, David is was very generous. I think we got more out of him than we gave to him. But the idea oh, yeah. was <laughs> that we would help promote his Chinese language uh, learning service, which we did. Um, but it was, yeah, it was strictly an amateur affair at the time. Um, both of us, uh, well, actually, you you hadn't quite started at Baidu, right? Carter? No, I was just
3: weeks away from starting. Then, you were yeah. weeks
0: away from starting at Baidu. Um, I was uh, extremely poor um, running my old company, <laughs> Dunway.org, off the sniff of an oil rag and basically um, living off instant noodles. Um, uh, and it was a, I mean, 2010 was, a, it was a big year, for um, people who follow stuff in China like us because we had, uh, our first episode was the Google pullout um, and we discussed that with Bill Bishop. Um, And in some ways, looking back, it seems to me that that is one of the moments you could almost say was epoch-defining. It was the end of hope for Western internet companies in China. Um, After the Google pullout, there were no tech companies that did anything uh, that involved free expression, I guess.
3: That's right. That was definitely a defining moment. Back then, our, our format, we tended to... I uh, invite mostly journalists on the show. I remember. I mean, if you yeah. think about who our regulars were, I mean, there were people like Gotti Epstein, uh, Shannon Van Sant, who I've just seen has joined us, uh, who's now at NPR and she's just doing fantastically well. A lot of the the people who were on with us early on, Kathleen McLaughlin, um, uh, you know, Tanya Brannigan, a, a lot of them were were fantastically good journalists who've gone on to to do things. You know, both in China and and outside of China, uh, we also had a bunch of sort of blogger types who were fantastic, like Jeremiah Jenny, who's still just one of my favorite people to, to chat China with, and uh, and Will Moss, uh, who who ran that fantastic blog Image Thief back then. Uh, but it's changed, hasn't it? I mean, it's 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 different now. The the whole approach to it. How did that happen? Uh, I think some of it is the broader environment. Um,
0: you know 2010 uh the big media companies didn't have quite such a big china focus as they well i guess that started you know before the olympics um but it it feels to me like the china uh, the foreign correspondent, um the foreign correspondence in china it has got a lot more professional in many ways yeah, yeah. Uh, in the last 10 years it was a much smaller circle um, And the world was starting to figure out that China was important, I think in 2010, but not quite to the extent that it is now where everybody everywhere has an opinion on China from Nairobi to, uh, you know, Kinshasa to Washington DC. Everybody has an opinion on China. In 2010, I don't think it was that case. Uh, You had people who were impressed by the Olympics. You had business people who were impressed. But it wasn't like the average schmo in Nashville, Tennessee, knew anything about China. And, <laughs> and, and the, you average know the average schmo, schmo in Nashville, Nashville, Nashville Tennessee, Tennessee, still doesn't know anything about China, but they're cu- more curious now than they were. And um, some of them are better informed.
3: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I'd say that the overall, the, the quality of journalism has just improved vastly. Well, it did until they started kicking out American journalists. But... Um, you know, so many more of them now are formally trained in the Chinese language. So many of them, more of them, you know, are are able to, to actually do direct uh, interviews with Chinese speakers. It's it's fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. And and that's actually one of the themes, I think, that uh, this show has talked about. We started off, you know, interviewing a lot of journalists. And all along the way, one of the, the sort of late motifs running through the show has been uh, English language coverage of China, and that's something that we've we've talked about directly, and, and is also always there lurking in the background whenever we're talking about stories about China. Uh, give us, give me your thoughts. I mean, how is, I mean, I, I, you know, I think we're both pretty big fans of, of, of many of the ways in which uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and Australian press has covered China, but I think both of us also have some criticisms. So, uh, What's, what's, give, give me your, your sort of 30,000-foot view on on English-language journalism in China, Jeremy.
0: Well, I, I think the essential problem with it is still um, something that um, Jamil Andalini, the FT correspondent, uh, uh, one of his uh, more memorable uh, phrases was that there are three, three China stories that people are interested in. Big China, scary China, and weird
3: China. Big China, bad China,
0: bad China, sorry, bad China. No, big China, bad China and, and uh, weird, China. weird China. And to some extent, unfortunately, that's still the case. And this is not the fault of the journalists writing it and not even necessarily the fault of editors who in New York or London or Sydney are seeking to uh, please their readers or interest their readers. Um, but it is China to this day still remains something that um, I think for a lot of Westerners is an other. It's an it's exotic. It's someplace else where other bad things happen to other people. Right. I, I think this is uh, this flaw, uh, and I, I'm not blaming this on the media. I don't know if you can blame this on anyone. But this problem, I think, is part of the reason why we're in such shit in the United States uh, and in other Western countries with COVID-19. Because from the beginning, we didn't see this as something that could affect the rest of the world. This seemed to be a China problem. And I, I mea culpa, I, I'm guilty of it. You know, I, I listened to a podcast, that uh, interview I did uh, in sometime in February where I was comparing COVID-19 to SARS. And I was kind of saying, well, you know, based on my experience with SARS, probably it's gonna kind of die down in the spring. And, you know, probably it's not gonna, I don't think I actually said it won't spread outside of China, but I was probably thinking that. Um, and this disease has revealed uh, very much the shortcoming of um, that way of thinking, of, of sort of the othering of China, of thinking of China as a, a place where things happen that couldn't happen elsewhere. And
3: you know, I think part of the reason for that is because, look, uh, for for obvious reasons, most of the journalists that we have covering in China from major American media organizations, their focus is on on politics, right? Uh, if not on on domestic Chinese politics, than on uh, China's international relations. But there's always sort of a political slant to a lot of the coverage. And and that is basically as it should be. But uh, having these same journalists then turn to cover the emergence of the crisis, uh, there was, again, understandably, a lot of focus on uh, the political dimensions of the emergence of, of COVID-19. And there was a lot of focus on Regime type as an explanatory variable in why it is that this happened in China, uh, in why it was that it was able to slip slip the leash in China. Uh, the, 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 my sense is that uh, that focus on regime type was a contributing factor to that kind of uh, uh, kind of cavalier attitude that so many of us had. We don't have that regime type. We in the United States or in, in other countries, we are uh, developed liberal democracies. We're open, we're pluralistic and therefore we're immune to uh, to the ravages of a disease like this. Do you think that that was that was part of the thinking too?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that is certainly part of the thinking. It, it's difficult though because I, I you know I, I don't know how far you can go with that because obviously regime type, and the way the Communist Party handled the early days of the crisis is a key, key part of the story. Um, and I think the story will continue to be investigated and told, you know, in the coming months, many times. And um, looking at how the Communist Party governs China, I think, is a, a very valid way of, um, trying to understand the origins of, of, of the pandemic. But you're right that uh, perhaps, not perhaps, I, how to put it, we didn't focus enough on the, the, on the science, on, on the science of disease. Um, I, I think that is true. I think the media, you know, including us uh, at SubChina, under my direction, so I'm not blaming other people, we didn't focus enough on on the science. And if we had perhaps put more attention into the science and less into the politics, perhaps America, Europe, um, other countries would have been better prepared.
3: Well, I think that's structural. I think that that there's, um, there are a few media organizations right now that have dedicated science reporters who focus on China. I mean, it's, it's very rare. In fact, you know, the two of us could only, we would only be able to name a few people who would regard that as their beat, you know, historically. I mean, we would... I can only think of two, actually. Yeah, Mara Mara Fistendahl and Christina Christina Larson, Larson. right? Right,
0: right. I don't know if, you know, if anyone in the audience has others, but those are the two that do science and China consistently.
3: Right, 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 right and and as it happens neither of them are now stationed in china both of them have repatriated to the us and uh they're still continuing to write about science in china but from a, a distance and so uh, that that's unfortunate but as i was saying it's structural uh not only are they not set up but i mean i think a lot of the the issues with with reporting on china are ultimately structural i mean who covers the quotidian there's just no reason to write about the bridges that don't collapse right um there's it's 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 a really embedded thing and so i I'm constantly finding myself in the, the strange position because I think a lot of people in in our circle regard me as somebody who is who tends to be very critical of media reporting in china uh but I more often I actually find myself defending uh, media reporting in china or trying to explain uh how it is that that there are immutable sort of you know unsolvable uh problems Problems that are, are structural and that I, I can only suggest that what you need to do is just understand the optical properties of this lens that we are all, for one reason or another, compelled to look through when we look at China, getting, you know, understanding how it diffracts the light, understanding how it bends things, and then knowing that and adjusting, you know, mentally for that, I think we can come to a more accurate picture. I think uh, on this show before, I've, I've talked about that wonderful metaphor that Jiang Fan uh, of the New Yorker used. Jeremy, I told you about this before, right? I mean, about the x-ray machine, right? Right. Yeah, so just for those of you in the audience who haven't haven't heard this before, because I just think it was so brilliant. So and I'm long. gonna
0: get a cup of coffee while you talk about that.
3: Okay, do it. Uh, yeah, so young uh, was taking part in the New Yorker uh, festival and she was being interviewed along with Peter Hessler and Evan Osnos and Orville Schell. Uh, you know these are all people who have covered China for the magazine before. I, I can't remember whether Ian Johnson was on that panel or not uh, but they were being interviewed by David Remnick and Jiang was asked by Remnick um, as somebody who was born in China and spent the early part of her life there, when you read Western media reporting about China what's what's your what what's your reaction to it and she said for me it's like looking at a familiar part of my body, my foot or my hand through an x-ray uh which is to say it's it's you know quite literally penetrating uh and and it is a very accurate representation uh but it is not a realistic representation that is it doesn't feel organically like my hand or my foot because it doesn't have the flesh and the you know the blood and the, the, the the soft tissue and all that uh that make it mine it's not moving right um And I I, I totally resonate with that as somebody who, you know, is ethnically Chinese, who has been steeped in China from very, you know, from a very, very early time. I I know exactly what she's talking about. Um, And I just it just reminds me that accuracy does not necessarily mean realism. But, yeah, I, I, you know, in in this time right now where we've seen some of the best reporters working in China uh, now being shown the door, Uh, I think that it's really important to emphasize what a great job so many of them have done, including and especially look at Chris Buckley, other New York Times correspondents like Amy Chin uh, or uh, Sui Wenli. uh, The the stories that they wrote in Wuhan were fantastic and humanizing and, and, and really compassionate. And it's, I get it, you know, it's this flaw in the human psychology that we remember the slights and the insults, the injuries, the omissions, somehow much more than we do the actual, uh, you know, good reporting.
0: So we have a question from Rochia Kriamas. Hi, Rochia. So the counterfactual would be, if this had emerged in the US, a European country, etc., would things have been different, particularly given the poor response we've seen in these countries, even with months of warning. What do you say to that,
3: Kaiser? Well, we do have a counterfactual. We do have a, a pandemic that did emerge in the United States first, the H1N1 uh, pandemic. And while the lethality, that was nothing close to what we're seeing right now. Uh, I think that, that you know, there was global cooperation. Uh, the United States did, did a fairly good job. Uh, the Obama administration did a, a pretty good job uh, uh, with that. Um so i I don't know. I mean it, whether it, if it had emerged now, I mean the the counterfactual that I think Rohir here is getting at is if it had happened during Trump's watch, uh, you know, having gutted the NSC's pandemic team, uh, having uh, you know, dismantled all these CDC operations in uh, other parts of the globe, would we have uh, no, and I, I I have to say no, I don't think it would have been handled well at all. I mean, we had a lot of time to react uh whatever China's culpability is, the hard facts of the timeline are that on December thirty first they did tell the WHO. Uh, and by the third, no later than the third of January, Trump was informed about the the outbreak of, of COVID nineteen. So let's not make this whole thing about about the, the pandemic. I know that's the the, the, the tendency. Uh, but I think that's that's uh that's 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 what, what it comes down to for me.
0: Okay. We have a couple of comments too. Science from Audrey Berlovitz. Science is not separate from politics, but we do need more discussion of science in political reporting, climate change, disease spread, and also many other related topics. Yeah. Yeah. I Audrey, totally agree.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I have to say, this is a, a theme for me. I, I, I gave a talk not so very long ago about sort of my five precepts that I think are, are important for good China watchers. One of them is, uh, w- w- one, one section that I talked about was about uh, being bicultural or aspiring to biculturalism. And uh, I think most people assume that what I meant was, you know, being able to swim familiarly in both Western and, and you know, Chinese Cultural, the cultural milieu there, but I also meant cultures in the way that C.P. Snow meant it in that lecture that he gave in 1959. You know, he was that physical chemist who wrote "The Two Cultures" about uh,
0: the arts, the humanities, and exactly science. the humanities.
3: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I've always, that's something I've always actually really admired about you, Jeremy, is that you are not a scientific illiterate, uh, and you know, you're somebody with whom you can have a reasonable conversation about things that are science, you know, actually science based. Um, And I think a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people, uh, including some reporters, just simply don't have enough formal training in in sciences.
0: But, you know, I think that's, uh, I mean, sorry, this is not really anything to do with China, I guess, but I I, I think um, there's a a flaw in at least, maybe it's the West, but certainly English-speaking cultures where we think that science and math are are hard and, and, and require special abilities. Whereas they don't, I mean, they're just like literature or anthropology. You just got to read stuff, it's right? I mean, um, but yeah, but, you the know, two cultures.
3: But there's there's most of the scientists, the people that I know, the engineers, people who are trained uh, in the natural sciences or in engineering. Uh, I meet them at a at a party, and they can hold forth on literature that they like. They know, you know, the the bare bones at least of history. They're they're not, you know but it's it's on us it's on on those of us who are on the social sciences humanities end of it to make to you know to to cross over uh, i see a comment from our dear friend david moser who deserves just a ton of shout out because you know he was always a, a rotating co-host on the podcast and he's just one of the oldest and dearest friends of the show uh he talks about uh, deb seligson who also has been uh on the show great science scholar uh, she was former state department uh, she's worked on epidemiology on climate change i think she's probably best known for her work on climate change and that's what she came on the show to talk about many years ago uh david she actually uh, i was just talking to her yesterday uh he writing a piece for us on sub china so look for that uh, next week
0: um sorry can i just ask a technical question can everyone hear me okay
3: yeah yeah we can just hear you fine
0: okay uh, so we have a question from Noah. Did you have aims for the podcast in the beginning that you feel haven't come through in these years that you either pivoted on or wish you could bring out? If I, I, Let me answer that first. is like actually no, Noah, because when we started it, it was just for a <laughs> <luck>. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I don't think we thought we were going to change the world. We just wanted to make a podcast about China because no one else was doing it at the time and uh, we wanted to uh, get together once a week and drink uh, a lot of beer with interesting people. Um, And um, so I suppose uh, what we are not achieving right now is drinking beer with other people. (laughs) (laughs) But I I can't honestly say that we started it with the mission. Okay, we are going to better inform the English listening community about China. I mean, we were just having fun and then it started to make sense and of course i think you know both kaiser and i have been involved in you know aside from this podcast all kinds of media you know we've kaiser's been a a reporter i've never been a proper reporter for a proper western media organization but i've been some variation of a blogger, or (laughs) journalist or editor for my whole working life uh and you know almost all of that has been involved with Uh, you know reporting on China and I think that the idea of making the English speaking uh, world uh, better informed about China is probably uh, both Kai's and I have felt that this is an important thing to do from even before we started Seneca Um, I you know have we achieved that I hope to an extent Um, but it would be nice if we could get bigger you know um one of the big pains in my life i used to say there's only 10,000 people every day interested in reading about china in english and i used to base that on uh my former website dunway.org's web traffic but also a bunch you know i worked for a listings magazine city weekend in in beijing for a little while as a consultant uh, on their website. And um, I, I even did a project for the Ministry of Culture that involved setting up a website. So I, I've seen the back end of a, many, many media operations that are seeking to uh, talk about China in English. And for the longest time, it just seemed like this was always going to be a minority interest. I think we're at a point now, and you know, maybe COVID-19 might even be a tipping point where the interconnectivity of the world is undeniable and maybe more mainstream people who don't care about China, you know, qua China, but care about the world are going to start caring about what's going on in China. Hmm. Um, and I hope that's the case. And I, I think if we failed anywhere, it's that we haven't grown mainstream uh, enough. Uh, and yeah, maybe I, that's I not agree. our fault, but... Um, I think you know that's still something that I feel we haven't achieved and I would like to achieve.
3: <laughs> uh, I see a very funny recommendation about uh, how to grow ourselves. Uh given all the, the the food posts that I've been putting up on Facebook, uh Rohir our friend uh, suggests that we can we we can uh, start having cooking videos from me on Well we, we, already, it, do, like, uh, we already do we do have
0: one, right?
3: One only one, right? Yeah, only one. And right? It's kind of it's kind of crap but Anyway, uh, I have, we have a great question from Jude Blanchett, uh, who is... This book everybody f- should read. Right. Five-time, I think, alum of, of Seneca. And I uh, hope you know, we have him for five more times just this year. He's just a fantastic guy uh, who is the Freeman chair at, uh, at CSIS. He writes, I'd be curious for your thoughts on the rise of specialization in the China academic and analyst worlds, and if that relative decline of generalists impacts positively or negatively how we understand China. No, I think that's a fantastic question. And uh, um, just referring again to that talk that I gave, I think that holism is still an approach that I I champion. I think that uh, the demise of area studies and the rise of disciplines has been a mixed blessing, but I think if you weigh it all the scales, it's negative. I think that um, was a time, that generation of the the greats who mentored the likes of me, uh, where it was possible to be... Uh, highly regarded in the discipline of, uh, say, political science or economics, but, you know, have touched more of the elephant and have, you know, are able to to embed that in a sort of whole, a, a, a larger uh, macro whole. Uh, there are still plenty of people in the disciplines who are able to do that. And there are programs out there that are specifically designed to encourage that. But uh, for me, I mean, it's an absolute article of faith. I, I encounter now all the time on on Twitter, of course, where else, uh, a lot of people who just simply are too narrow, if not in their training, then, also, then in their framing. For example, this this insistence on framing every goddamn thing through the lens of national security. That just doesn't uh, yield a, a realistic picture of China. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that to answer Jude's question succinctly, I think, on balance, it's been it's been a bad thing, but it's not beyond salvation. I think that we just need to have an expectation uh, that anyone who's actually in a discipline take an anthropology class, take a, you know a class outside of take a lot of classes, and of course, the one that weaves them all together is history, and so the study of history is absolutely paramount to anyone who wants to undertake the study of China
0: i i'm gonna let you just answer that question <laughs> okay but yeah, uh, that's uh neil thomas on that point how do you feel the rise of social media has changed professional china washing for better or worse <laughs> as it basically cons- coincides with the lifetime of seneca well i i would say first of all it it it, it predates seneca i mean i think social media lets uh I, I trace the rise of China watching social media to the launch of my previous website, Dunway, in 2003, which was when <laughs> no, the blogging really fair. got going, right? So the, the, the thing was, <clears throat> I remember when I started uh, Dunway, um, this uh, family friend who used to be the Daily Telegraph correspondent for uh, Southern Africa looked at it and he wrote to me, Like, what the hell is this? You know, what are you doing? This is bullshit. Um, And then a few years later, um, he got laid off uh, or early retirement. And about a month after that, um, the Daily Telegraph asked me to write a thousand words about the internet (laughs) in China. And he got it and he was like, oh, okay. You know, so, I mean, it's it's been going on for a while. Um, I I, I think that the rise of social media in many ways is truly wonderful for uh, an informed citizenry everywhere. Because, you know, we no longer have the gatekeepers, you know, people like me, editors who can stories. So, you know, 15 years ago, you know, I was an editor of, well, 20, uh, I don't know how many years ago, I was an editor of, you know, Beijing scene, say. And a freelancer would approach me with a story and I'd say, no, your story sucks, bugger off. And then they would be left perhaps with no venue to publish. And it would become in the wonderful Chinese uh, phrase, choti uh, you know, the, the literature that you put in your drawer because you can't publish it. Um, Whereas now that same freelancer, if they feel really strongly about what they're talking about, they can publish. And a lot of the time, that's good. You know, people are uh, giving points of view and information that would not otherwise be available and that the mainstream media, if, if that is truly a thing, uh, maybe would not pick up on. Uh, on the other hand, there's also a lot of junk out there and noise and stupid opinions and stupid people being stupid and um, <laughs> I, I don't know, to be honest, whether the stupid or the smart is winning in terms of social media about China right now with COVID-19. I I, I feel that the stupid is winning out. Um, just the the level of animosity on. Particularly Twitter. I mean, maybe that's just because that's where you know I'm sort of a native. Um, the level of stupid is is very deep right now. Um, uh, you know, the like blame China for everything is taken over the China Twitter sphere. Like half of the China Twitter sphere is like it's all China's fault. It's all China's fault.
3: Yeah, I've, I mean, I think Twitter is just a toxic. Goddamn cesspool most of the time. Uh, I think that it it's just it's a medium that encourages uh, hot takes that just you know that rewards activating sort of emotionally activating language uh, rather than than calm deliberation. Uh, I think you know people figure it out pretty early on that if I write a little milk toast sort of on the one hand on the other hand, tweet. I'm just not going to get that little squirt of dopamine uh, that comes of people liking and retweeting. But if you say something really strident and really extreme, you'll get that. And uh, so there's it, it, it just develops this kind of horrible, perverse feedback system uh, that just encourages more and more of that. I, I um, think that all, twi- all, all social media is not made equal, like Jeremy said. I actually spend a lot of my social media effort on Facebook, uh, which is weird. A lot of people think it's, it's an odd thing to do, uh, but I have kind of a community of people who follow uh, my stuff on Facebook, and I post a lot of, of articles that I, I find uh, either uh, worthy of praise or of condemnation and generate quite a bit of discussion around though so I, I encourage everyone who's interested just to you know to, to hop on Facebook follow me add me as a friend or whatever and uh, there's a pretty lively and surprisingly civil conversation partially because I'm pretty ruthless with uh, deleting you know trolling comments and with with just blocking people who are who are asking <laughs> um, there's um, a lot of great questions on this list so yeah let's, let's,
0: let's look at some of these questions um, yeah, yeah so well a comment from James Carter. History is one of the only disciplines left where it's possible to be an area study specialist. And history is under threat, as is much of the academy. Indeed. Absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: History. We never learn.
3: Right. And so, I mean, on, on the, the, the subject of history, this is another sort of something that I'm always trying to hammer home. Uh, obviously, it's important that people study the history of China, right? That, I mean, if you if you aspire to be a China watcher, that's 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 just sort of, you know. Uh, of course, uh, but there are there are two two things I would add to that. One is don't just study history as it is uh, taught in in Western academia. I mean, it, it's very valuable. It's 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 you should obviously start there, but also understand history as it is uh, uh, taught and understood. By the Chinese people themselves, the Chinese version of history. I'm going to recommend a book here that I just started. It's by Michael Shulman, uh, "Superpower Interrupted," which, uh, which is just that, which is a. He describes it as uh, the Chinese history of the world, uh, which is is it's it's really important to understand. You know that the Chinese history doesn't give a damn about Pericles or or you know Aristotle doesn't. You know care that much about Justinian or about Constantine or about um, you know Augustine or or uh, Thomas Aquinas, right They have a different uh, an entirely different historical perspective and, and you need to exercise again that empathy and, and step into those into that world and understand uh, that that set of viewpoints. The other uh, thing I would say about the study of history is it is not enough to study, Uh, China's history, or even the history of the East Asian region, uh, you need to really understand uh, our history, that is, Western history, the history of Europe and and its colonial offshoots. If you don't, uh, then one thing that you lack, I think the most important thing that you lack, is an appreciation for the utter contingency. I mean, how weird it is that we got to this place, because too many people... Uh, just have imbibed this teleological idea that oh yeah you know this is how it's supposed to be everything converges on liberal you know uh capitalist democracy uh, and that's just not just not how it goes I mean and you need to understand This is uh, the
0: classic Kaiser shtick.
3: It, but it's I mean I say it again and again and yet I encounter the same idiocy constantly out there uh-huh. Oh yeah, right anyway
0: all right. So another question from Doug Hughes, which publications are worth reading, English, Chinese or other most helpful to keep up with current events in China? Jeremy, model worker blogs from Dunway were amazing. Could we bring back something similar with Subchina? Well, Doug, we actually did. We haven't done it for a couple of years, but we have a, a page of sub China sources um, that uh, I, I will. I think we should update. That's a very good idea. But uh, which sources are good? Uh, you know, I think the standout media com- media organization in China is without a doubt, Caixin. Um, you know, most of their coverage is about business and economics, but when things happen like COVID-19, uh, they uh, push the envelope. Um, it's a media company with integrity, the editor, Hu Shuli, um, is somebody who has um what's a non-sexist way of saying big balls um uh, (laughs) you uh, just you you just
3: came up with one Um, chutzpah
0: chutzpah. oh no yeah more than chutzpah i mean uh, you know there is a commitment to to, uh truth telling which is extremely rare in chinese media um so yeah i i would say tyson is like would be if i had to recommend one it would be that um, with the
3: caveat that it's not infallible of like, course you know, it's not
0: infallible and yeah. <laughs> also most of their interesting articles you know are like 10,000 words long and they bury the lead like 5,000 words in so uh, it requires a certain patience to um get out of it what is interesting um aside from that i mean i i find you know um I don't think it's possible to rely on a, a small number of sources anymore, um, both because you know you have great reporting in the... It might get worse now that the correspondents have all been kicked out, but the major American newspapers uh, and The Guardian uh, from uh, uh, Britain, uh, I mean, their China coverage is, is pretty damn good right now. Much, much better than it was 10 years ago and no comparison to 20 years ago. Um, I think SCMP,
3: come on, SCMP. SCMP
0: has, uh, you know, despite the occasional dodgy editorial, um, they've been doing a great job, and they do not seem to have been co-opted by the Communist Party, which is pretty amazing.
3: Indeed, no. Yeah. I mean, it's really impressive.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, people. some people say, you know, they're not trustworthy because of Jack Ma or whatever, but, I mean, if you look at what they're actually doing uh, they're publishing great stuff. Um, so yeah, SCMP, I I think, um, you need to keep an eye on Chinese social media. Weibo is still a great source of understanding what Chinese people are talking about. Now, of course it's censored. So it's, some of it is, um, what Chinese people are allowed to talk about, but there's always a little bit of rough activity around the margins of what's acceptable. And by following Weibo, I think you can uh, get a good sense of that. Um, But yeah, we need to update our sub-China sources, Doug, and we will do that. Thank you very much for the suggestion.
3: I see a great question from Wing Kai, uh, who's at at uh, at. uh, uh, My God, I cannot not remember the name of the university I visited you. Bit. Bridge, Bridgewater State University. You're having a senior moment. I am having a senior moment, right. Um, Winkai asks, do you think the superficial negative coverage of China by politicians and pundits and TV and cable news drowns out the message of more nuanced understanding of US-China relations? How can we best counter that xenophobia and anti-Americanism on both sides? Now, that's a very good and very fair question. Uh, because- and it's also
0: connected to the question just before that from Paul it Fox, should. which is given yeah. the present negativity in the media in the US... What strategies might we recommend to present a more positive or at least balanced view of China to our kids going now and going forward? And let me just take up on the idea of kids because I'm finding myself, um, I mean, my children are half Chinese um, and they're, right now, very proud of being Chinese. (laughs) I, you know, it's very difficult because I know that there's going to come a day when suddenly they might think, oh my God, I'm Chinese. You know, look at these horrible communists or, you know, they're harvesting organs from Falun Gong and they're, uh, you know, there's concentration camps in Xinjiang. And, uh, you know, I I, I don't, um, I, I think this is a great question because balance is, um, Balance is really tough, right? Um, We know, I think probably everybody on this call has some kind of fairly deep connection to China. And we know that people in China are the same as everywhere. There's a lot of decent people. And we also know that under Xi Jinping, the Communist Party is getting more and more oppressive and scarier and scarier. And that's that's not fake news, that's true. Um, I don't know the answer, Kaiser.
3: Maybe you have an answer. Well, I think uh, the easiest answer from the American side, and I think that this will actually change things appreciably on the Chinese side as well, is to elect Joe Biden in November. Uh, We really need to do that. I think that uh, whatever you may think of of, of him, uh, when it comes to the China issue, look at the people who will be advising him on China. Um, These are people like ryan haas uh these are people like jake sullivan people like uh jeff prescott these are all people with deep knowledge and nuance on china and who are not uh knee-jerk hawks by any stretch of the imagination they will oppose xenophobia they will and the moral tone that's set in the white house in the nsc at the state department uh will have a, a tremendous effect and i think that uh Whatever you think of, of, of Xi Jinping, I honestly believe that so much of the illiberalism that, is, that we've seen, not just under Xi, but even before that, has been reactive to Chinese perceptions of increased American hostility, uh, that when we do less, we get more. So I, I think that that's, that is the most practical answer to this question.
0: Uh, particularly now, I, I think the, the Communist Party is actually very receptive to friendliness right now because they know they're potentially in the sh- despite the very well-publicized mask donation programs, medical supplies, etc. Uh, I mean, the other day in our newsletter, I just did a summary of around the world, how pissed off people are with China, from Nigeria to India to America to Italy. Uh, you know, so I think the... The the party is going to be receptive to friendliness, but we'll see, you know, uh, America, unfortunately, is perhaps, um, you know, proving uh, Mencken right. You know, at some point we are going to elect a complete idiot. And uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. so, so we're on
3: the subject of of nationalism, on ze- of xenophobia, and all of that stuff. Um, and there's a couple of questions that are related to that. Uh, let's just sort of you know put them all together um, and and talk just basically about this this issue of, of uh, xenophobia in China. Of you know so or, sort of, from Miranda, you know,
0: a... right? Uh, Miranda sure, but also the...
3: Natasha Locke asks, "Do you think Xi Jinping is the cause or the effect of rising nationalism within Chinese society?" Which is a very very good question, Jeremy. Why don't you take a crack at that first?
0: um i think to a certain extent he is the cause um because he has a very clear agenda of essentially making china great again um and that's been very clear from the early days of of his rule and in some ways it's understandable i i i think that um The essay by the former party school director, uh, uh, Deng Yuen, that was published in, when was it, 2011, I think, The Ten Grave Problems Left Behind by the Hu Wen Administration, I think is a really wonderful insight into the problems that Xi Jinping inherited. Uh, If you haven't read this essay, uh, there's a translation on the chinastory.org that I had a part in. Um, and it was, you know, th- this was a, a party guy, a, a party scholar, a fairly critical, uh, intelligent guy. But, I mean, coming from inside the party, looking at what happened in the decade of uh, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. Uh, and essentially, there were so many problems left unsolved from, um uh you know, the, the inequities, economic inequities, environments, the lack of political direction, etc. And I, I think that one of the reasons why Xi even was able to become the top leader was because many people inside the um, leadership, inside the, the top echelons of the Communist Party, felt that things were spinning out of control in China and it needed a an iron fist or it needed somebody who was a very strong leader to come along and sort these out. So in, in some ways, much of this is sort of understandable, the the, the the sense that the country was kind of not coping with the late stage of reform in an adequate way and that things were spinning out of control. And one of the tools Xi Jinping had at his disposal was nationalism, the China dream, you know. Uh, things have a, a way to rally people around the cause of staying loyal to the party and keeping the party in power, but also to try and solve some of the very real problems that were left behind by Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. So, I mean, I, I, I think Xi is, is, is to blame for the increased nationalism um but i don't know that if there was another leader it would have been different
3: Mm. yeah i agree with that last point i don't think that it would have been different so and in that being the case i don't know that it's it's fair to lay that at the feet of of c no i think
0: you can i mean come on you know he's the leader
3: so i first of all let me let me distinguish between nationalism on the one hand, which I take to mean, uh, you know, it, it, I use it as a pejorative. When I say the word nationalistic, uh, I I truly intend it to be a pejorative. Uh, the uh, maybe innocuous version of it, the less pejorative, the more neutral, is simply patriotic. Uh, and some of the things that you've described. You know
0: what that's very negative outside of China and the United States. Like in England or South Africa or Australia, people don't use patriotic. Okay, so there isn't a good
3: word for it in English. (laughs) There isn't a good good word for it in English. But um you know so I think that there's there is, however, a distinction to be made between kind of assertive nationalism uh which usually has an enemy and identifies either an internal or an external enemy. We're starting to see that. I mean, you know, the the, the ugly nationalism with a xenophobic component to it, uh, yeah. and you know that I think, uh, sure, let's put that at Xi's feet. I mean, he's he's been on, on you know, it's him who allowed people like you know Jolly Jen to. To, to spew the sorts of nonsense that they've been spewing recently. Uh, but if we go back a little, you know, if we go back to, as you know, I think you you rightly pointed out, to the early years of the C administration, and we we look at why it is that uh, th- there was a kind of convergence around the idea that there was a need for a leader. You push your finger on it. I mean, there was a deliberately collective leadership during the who and when years, and as you say, a lot spun out of control. There were these unbridled, uh, you know, sort of, power centers uh, based around large uh, industries and, and interest groups. You had, you know, Zhou Kong, for example, in the petroleum sector. Uh, a lot of these sort of family, you know, sort of um, nepotistic networks. Uh, this was dangerous, and I think a lot of people recognize that. Now, um, what, what I think we get wrong, though, I mean, a lot of people wonder why it is that, uh, you know, so many of us we're fairly optimistic about Xi Jinping uh, in 2007 when he was named, uh, and then in even as late as 2011, 2012 when it looked like he was about to take power, and we wonder how we got him so wrong because you know after all he comes into power and he immediately becomes this unbridled autocrat, uh, and and doesn't seem at all committed to you know uh, to liberalizing reforms in in even the economic sector, let alone politics. Uh, I don't think that gets it right at all. I think that that uh it's not that we got it wrong. It's that we did not anticipate uh the events of 2012, the sort of near coup conditions that prevailed. We did not anticipate, you know, that there would be uh that he would have such uh a a dangerous internal threat environment and a really dangerous external threat environment which, you know, of course, he ginned up a bit to you know to 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 justify his, you know, draconian internal rule but i don't think it's it, it says that we i don't think that there's there's evidence that we got him wrong i think that we just did not see and nobody saw what was going to happen in 2012
0: well i'm not sure about that i mean i i i started to get very negative on the party in 2009 um okay. some of that was because my website was blocked and yeah I yeah, we, we, yeah I know. <laughs> but um uh uh, it wasn't just that. I mean, the 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 change, I think, became evident in after the Olympics and the financial crisis. There was a new political wind in China and um, You know, it's not yes. just Xi, right?
3: Um, this has been one of the themes that we've talked about a lot on this show. You know, this what we used to call the new truculence until it became, you know, the old and long-lasting truculence. Right. Right. So,
0: um, uh, can we just get back to Miranda's specific question? Sure. Is there a way to compare and contrast uh, COVID-19 propaganda with the response to the Chinese embassy bombings in Belgrade, which, of course, you and I, Kaiser, were in Beijing for?
3: Yeah, I was right at the embassy there.
0: Right. And I, yeah, my our offices at Beijing scene at the time was just around the corner. Um, But, you know, I was not an American citizen at that time. I I was like, ha, 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 ha. Well, we're made war, huh? (laughs) Um, Too late now. Yeah,
3: Um,
0: but uh, what's different about that, uh, the embassy bombings in Belgrade in 99, um, I mean, um, uh, 99?
3: Ninety-nine, right? I'm having a Look, CMO. neither of us is on the uh, ground now. There, right? So all we can do is sort of hear it secondhand about these instances of anti-American uh, xenophobia. But I, one
0: thing that is very different, I think, is the information environment. Right. Uh, right you right. know, the, everybody has a modem and everyone has a, an opinion now, uh, and that wasn't the case back then.
3: No, there uh, was about one point two million people online at the time of the embassy bombing in China. Yeah, only one point two million. Right
0: and so um this sort of response from the chinese citizenry i think was much more limited because they had much less information uh and you know although there were um sort of propagandistic broadcasts from cctv etc uh they didn't really uh let out a lot of information whereas now uh it's impossible for the Chinese state to completely hide world events, although it, you know, they're very good at shaping people's perception of them. Um, so I think that that's very different. There's just a lot more people who the party can uh, engineer political engagement with now. Uh, and that makes it much more dangerous, essentially, um, because uh, when they turn on the taps, the propaganda taps, they can literally reach the entire population. You know, everybody has a mobile phone.
3: In 99, there were deep reservoirs of pro-American sentiment uh, that were ballast. That, it, you know, one thing that strikes me about 99 is how short it was. By the middle of the summer, we didn't feel that anymore. It was over. Uh, there were no longer fist fights. There were no, was no longer any sort of, you know, anti-Americanism. It, mm, went it went back to normal. It was okay to fly the flag again. Uh, I don't know how much of that reservoir of, of sort of, you know, friendly feeling toward the Americans is left now. Uh, I, I don't know. I think there is still some in there. I think that it's it's clear that, you know, it's possible that, um, you know, once again, it'll go back to, to to how it was, where there'll be, you know, always a, a sort of seething resentment to some extent, but all, also a tremendous admiration um, hard to say. I, I don't know ultimately what's going to happen. Uh, so that's that's a, a, another major difference. The other thing is is uh, the embassy bombing was one thing. It was about um, you know uh, there were a, only a, a handful of people killed. It didn't have the same direct impact that the COVID nineteen has had. You've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of somebody living in Wuhan or in Hubei or even in in any other city in China that was undergoing lockdown. Uh, They honestly felt like they were the ones who were enduring this as the rest of the world sat spectator, watching this, uh, picking apart what they had done wrong. And again, without a, a real feeling that there was a whole ton of sympathy being extended to them. I mean, I understand what that feels like. And I understand the urge, I don't support it at all, to um, to do a little bit of a victory dance, to indulge that schadenfreude uh, now that the shoe's on the other foot.
0: Indeed. So I don't know, how much time have we got left? Um, uh, we're
3: only at one o'clock right now, so we've we got, we got, got another hour questions. if we want it. Let's go back to some questions. All right. <laughs> you know, um... Why don't we, you know, hear from some of the people who've got questions? Um, you know, does anyone if,
0: want to go on video?
3: Yeah, if, you, if, if somebody wants to put their video on and ask a question, let, let's uh let's do that.
0: But while we're waiting for that, Noah, a comment from <laughs> Noah that's pretty funny. How do we point out all that scary stuff Jeremy is talking about without getting retweeted by freaky American hawks?
3: <laughs>
0: you know, that is the problem that i wake up every day thinking about (laughs) right right. (laughs) because i don't want to stop pointing out the scary stuff about xi jinping and his party but you know then you get these people like you know the this uh, so-called trader kyle bass and gordon chang who will seize on anything to you know really bash china um i don't know you know it's pretty tough. Um, I, I I think you know what I don't have an answer to that question.
3: Okay, somebody named Zhang or or Chang put their their hand up. Uh, go ahead and turn your video on. I uh, don't know where you are on here, but let me see if I can find you. Yeah, go for it.
1: Hey, hey, Kaiser, hey, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, so uh i'm chong i'm a uh i i work in tech in san francisco data scientist um let's see trying to scroll up back to my question right so my question was kind of centered around this idea of like what chinese people actually think about things and we all know that like public opinion polling is not really a thing in china um and so that leads to a lot of people with a lot of various different takes about you know, oh, Chinese people think this. No, they actually think that. Uh, And I'm just wondering, uh, given the total lack of, you know, opinion polling or any rigorously scientific means of getting actual opinion data, uh, or opinion data, uh, what is the best way to try and approximate what Chinese people actually think about certain
3: issues. We did a whole episode on this uh, with Neil Thomas from Marco Polo, the Paulson Institute. Uh, I would just. I think he's on the call, actually. Neil's actually on the call. Neil, if you want to unmute yourself and and answer that question, that would be great. You there, Neil?
1: Oh, maybe he's dropped off. Off Yeah.
3: Yeah, here here he is.
1: Yeah, I think the answer is that, um, yeah, there is a lot of opinion polling that's happened. In China and there's a pretty r- robust debate that's actually been getting much more robust over the last uh, Few months actually in academia about the reliability of various polls, but um, I think there's enough consistency in some of those results that You can get some reasonably reliable General um, thoughts and you know, there is a relatively strong degree of support for me of the policy particularly on the domestic front and you know Jessica Chen but Price and others have done great stuff on nationalism and foreign policy front so there is some research out there and um, definitely look it up a lot of it can be um, found you know publicly outside of the academic paywalls and yeah I listen to Seneca every week
3: <laughs> yeah no, it's it's a this is this is a question that again this is one of the big themes is I mean and this is one of the reasons why we, we did this show it was a lot of course easier to do when we were in China but we always I always wanted to try to, to channel that voice um, I think that this is another one of the the, the problems again a structural one with uh, media coverage of China is we hear an awful lot from people with quite extreme views uh, we hear in the op-ed pages the people who are invited to, uh, to you know, who are Chinese or ethnically Chinese uh, are either uh, dissidents, you know, pretty s- often very savage critics of the regime, or they are, you know, uh, just rank apologists, the like of Zhang Weiwei. Uh, we, those are the people that we see. Um, I think this, this was put so well by Jude Blanchett when we were talking about this. He said we need to hear from the david brooks of china <laughs> you know somebody who is sort of an establishment moderate and who actually represents a pretty huge swath of what people really think and this is i think one of the, the big problems now i would if you're interested in sort of the intellectual ed- end of that i would point to uh uh to a a uh, website called oh my god why am i spacing the name of it um translating the china dream i think it's called or no that that's maybe the subtitle of it um oh my god i i i am i'll i'll senior, another you.
0: senior moment oh dear i'm the having another worrying, senior huh? moment
3: <laughs> i i haven't had coffee this morning i'm just drinking you know weak tea here so yeah that's, this that's is why, not but. good mm. anyway it's um it, it's a fantastic yeah reading the china dream there we go thank you thank you thank you very much some Somebody leapt to my, 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 my rescue there. Reading the China Dream, I, I highly recommend uh, checking out that site. That gives you a really great overview of what, you know, prominent but sort of more mainstream intellectuals in China are actually thinking about political issues. All right, who's got, anyone else want to put their hand up? Sure, okay, Rohir, our good friend Rohir. Jump on.
2: Well, first of all, congratulations! Uh, you're still my favorite uh, China podcast, and I think for a lot of people. And you know, up uh, here's to another ten years. Thank you. But
3: um, uh-oh, there's Bus. a there, there's a quote from. So uh, you
0: can stop there
2: now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Can't hear you. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, go ahead.
2: What I want to ask: There's a quote from uh, the Belgian sinologist Simon Lace that has always stuck with me, which is that as a Westerner, to write about oneself is to look at oneself in a mirror. Um, And it seems that maybe there is a role here as well in terms of the anti-China debate, where I'm wondering to what extent a lot of the vociferousness that we see aimed at China stems from either an inability or an unwillingness uh, to recognize the extent to which we as Westerners or our governments have been, or or our businesses have been complicit in the situation that has been generated um, or that we are unable to reflect on, you know, um, the issues in our own systems. And so to what extent, if we are discussing these questions about how to tell China stories better um, or to better understand what China's on, does, does it actually require Western audiences to take a long, hard look at themselves and have to recognize that they might not be everything they're cracked up to be
3: no i absolutely agree i mean this is you know part of what i was saying with this urging people to to sort of study their own history is is one part of that oh absolutely i i i couldn't have said it better so
0: i mean i i think i would tend to kind of say that's sort of commie bullshit um roger but I am forced to reevaluate that in the face of COVID 19, where it is very, very clear that both in America and now also in Britain, where of all the people calling for reparations for COVID 19, the British, oh my gosh, open up that tap. The whole world is going to be after them. But, you know, the hypocrisy uh, is just stunning. Um, and,. the 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 trump and you know certain members of the republican party attempt to shift all the blame for this thing in the united states to china is completely absurd so uh, you know my 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 sort of gut instinct to your question is no that's nonsense but i'm forced to admit uh, in current times that you're right
3: Great. I'm I'm glad that that something good has come of the COVID nineteen. <laughs> um, there's a great question by Ch- from Chad to everyone, um, to us, Jeremy and Kaiser. I remember being at a conference, which both I think of you called the Duke UNC CLS. Uh, a few years ago on the topic of China's soft power, are are there any trends you've seen since then leading you to believe that Chinese film, music or other popular media might finally in the near future begin making the kind of world worldwide splash that the same from South Korea and Japan have? If not, do you see soft power increasing via other means? Um, I think that was probably you. I don't remember giving that talk, uh, but i'm I'm happy to give my opinion on this, which probably lines up pretty well with yours, which is to say, no. It ain't going to happen, and mostly because uh, soft power is not something that comes from the top down. It's not produced by the government. At most in South Korea, it's produced by these all-powerful record companies. <laughs> but, um, no, besides that, I think it has to come in from the margins. It has to bubble up from, from the bottom. You know, the United States government did not create rock and roll, Coca-Cola, or Blue Jeans, right? I mean, that's that's the short answer. And the more China talks about soft power, the, the more it erodes its own soft power in the world.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Although I, I think we are, you know, COVID-19 again is an interesting, um, you know, game changer in a way. It's still not clear how China's international image will alter after this thing. It seems pretty clear that in some parts of the world, at least amongst the governing elite, China has done a very good job in um, uh, promoting itself as a responsible international actor by sending medical supplies and stuff like that. But at the same time, you have, uh, you know, as I said earlier, everywhere from India to Nigeria, people blaming China. So I don't know if it's going to work. but, as, you know, in terms of films, movies, music, no, it's not going to happen.
3: You know, they've gotten worse, I think, um, and not better. And I think that we've seen a kind of divergence in taste, um, it, the sort of aesthetic, you know, divergence right now between, let's take film, you know, Chinese film audiences and, and American film audiences and uh we did it a, a podcast recently with Janet Yang and Michael Berry uh in which we talked uh, about that, that phenomenon. Uh it's depressing to me as somebody who was actually involved in that for well, not in film but um in music just to see just how little uh traction it, it stands to gain.
0: Yeah. I it's very depressing. Uh yeah. Uh, let's change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> right,
3: right, 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 right.
0: So I see Neil Thomas uh, put in a link to uh, uh, Simon lays or Pierre Reichsmann's R- R- work. Um, this is essential reading if you're interested in China. Simon, Simon Lace, uh was the... I, I mean, I, I think the... How to put it? I mean, he... he, he is the Western Sinologist who first got the People's Republic of China a long time ago and in an environment, an interesting thing about him, he, he started writing critically about the Cultural Revolution at a time when European leftists, which had taken over the academy, you know, the French Maoists were still in their prime and people thought the Cultural Revolution was wonderful and he was writing very critically about it and got a lot of trouble for it, but very, very clear, clear thinking. Um, Speaking of how to understand uh, Chinese people, you know, uh, what do we know about what they really think? One of the interesting things he said, I think, was like, um, imagine if, if you're an ichthyologist, you know, somebody who studies fish, and suddenly the fish learn to talk. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and we are now. Uh, he was comparing this to you know what will happen when Chinese people start being able to explain themselves to the outside world. And we are now in an era where when you know the Chinese fish are talking, Chinese people are explaining themselves to the outside world, and it's a very very different um, information environment from the seventies and eighties when it was you know mostly like middle aged white dudes explaining China. To the rest of the world Um, That's no longer the case Uh, Which makes me also think In terms of understanding What Chinese people think There's a great crew Of young Chinese journalists Writing in English Um, And uh, what's the collective Called Chinese Storytellers Where they send an email Every couple of weeks um, Summarizing basically What has been published In English by Chinese-born journalists And I think that's uh, another good way of, you know, trying to get a little more accurate picture of what's going on in people's heads.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Simon Leves is terrific. And, and I think that everyone who aspires to be a China watcher should be familiar with his work. But um, it's of a time. And I am not somebody who believes that there is perfect continuity between the Chinese Communist Party of Mao and that, from Deng onward, or even between the Chinese Communists of the Deng and Jiang years, and the the CCP under Xi, um, you know, a lot has obviously changed. And so, I, I would caution people not to uh, to take too to heart some of the more sort of uh, temporally contingent um, observations that Simon Lewis makes
0: yeah i would probably disagree with you there and say that he's identified some of the real problems with the communist party that haven't gone away but we can differ yeah
3: we can absolutely um so he has a question
0: from our own jesse working with someone for 10 years is not easy what are the things you disagree on (laughs) everything
3: yeah yeah we don't we don't have a ton of agreement uh there's a lot. There's a lot we differ on. I think um, we
0: we both like alcohol. I guess we agree on that.
3: Uh, I mean, some one knows more than the other, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, we we I think that that part of why this show has been uh, fun to do and why it's worked and why I'm so glad that Jeremy's on more of the shows now. I mean, uh, he has had. Let's let's just be very clear. He, uh, as editor in chief of SubChina, had a lot of work to do. That did not allow him to travel with me all the time did not allow him to to um to be involved in preparing uh and recording and uh, getting involved in the podcast and uh it's really good now that he's sort of more back in in the mix because I think one of the valuable things uh was having the two of us often intention and and not agreeing on on a lot of these things I think that's uh two you know, having it too dominated by one perspective is not, not good for the show.
0: I think we have a question from Grace for video, hopefully. Oh, great. Grace, are you there?
3: Take it away, Grace.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Um, I'm Grace, I'm a freshman at Georgetown University. And one of the questions I had was, um, to what extent can increasing tensions over the past few years be attributed to failures in diplomacy? And then kind of going forward, what factors think will contribute most to fostering like truly effective dialogue between the two countries?
3: Yeah, um, of course it could be attributed to diplomacy because there is no diplomacy. There hasn't been uh, anything that you could call real diplomacy. Um, foreign policy. Yes, but diplomacy, no diplomacy is, uh, you know, a, a gentle art of compromise and conversation. It, 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 uh, is, has been signally absent in the Trump administration and not just with respect to China. Um, I think the whole uh, foreign policy approach of the Trump administration, and he's made no secret of this, is anti-diplomatic. So uh, yeah, I I, mean, I absolutely think that's a huge factor in this. Um, as to what we can do going forward... Again, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to this. Let's let's put the right guy in the White House. Uh, I mean, that that will be an important start. Uh, but also, I think, I, I think, you know, the people on the other side, the people who insist on framing everything through the lens of national security, the people who uh, who you know truly do demonize China. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here. The people who are unapologetic sinophobes, they are louder. They know how to use that activating emotion. They know how to get out there on social media and, you know, bring along with them people, for example, uh, who, for unrelated reasons, uh, have their beefs with the Chinese Communist Party and uh, are willing to amplify their voices and give them the, some so, sort of imprimatur of somebody with a Chinese surname and writing in Chinese characters and then, you know, hashtagging all their posts, Nazi" or whatever. Uh, these people need to be countered. I mean, those of us who are um, more in the central center, and I would even include Jeremy in that, uh, need to get out there and, and counter it. I mean, you know, Jeremy says he wakes up every morning and thinks about how, you know, the very valid criticisms he so often makes about the party uh, are being, you know, used for the other side. And I, I, I think that, you know, it's great that he's, he's thinking about that and uh, would encourage everyone to, you know, to... Try to move the conversation back to, you know, to a sensible one that talks about what realistic guardrails that, do, that's clear eyed, that looks at China and doesn't see, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but, you know, understands that there are very, very serious problems. There are very, very serious issues that we have and we will always have with, with the People's Republic of China, but that, uh, understands that co- cooperation is, is deadly necessary right now.
0: Uh, Which brings us to a question Audrey just uh, posted. Do you believe that everyday people-to-people diplomacy, China, US, could exist or the barricades too large? (coughs) Uh, Maybe we can even extend this, I I, I think, beyond the US because I I think Europe is, uh, many countries in Europe are starting to um, resemble the United States in the sense of there's a growing public suspicion of of the People's Republic. And I think people-to-people exchanges are vital. Um, It's only when things become human, when it's your friends and relatives or business contacts involved, that you can start to see beyond the nasty headlines. So I don't think the barricades are too large for for people-to-people diplomacy, but it's much, much more difficult than it ever was that's right particularly in the case of the u.s. where we have a government that is you know um keen to blame china for everything it it, it, um look it's not just the
3: u.s government that's causing this either right i mean i'm gonna sound like jeremy here for a second but let's be clear-eyed about people to people diplomacy too jeremy is right in saying it's not easy i mean it's not just not easy i we just we can't be naive about this look Prior to 2007, 2008, when there were not a lot of, uh, look, there, there was barely any people to people diplomacy. But the encounters between Chinese and Americans took place under the, the very polite auspices of sister city exchanges and, you know, guber- gubernatorial delegations for trade between this state and another state. Uh, and then, there you know, just a handful of expatriates or whatever living in one country, um, you know, in, in China. And Jeremy probably knew most of them. <laughs> uh, look, when we started to be able to, like, you know, uh, stand nose to nose, really, with with Chinese people, it turns out we don't see eye to eye. Uh, th- it was just, I and mean, if you look at, at at the history of online relationships between Chinese and the United States, and, and 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 Americans, you know, I, I had a, a phrase I borrowed from Rebecca McKinnon that it was the the war of the rednecks versus the red guards all the time. I mean, it was just there isn't a lot of common ground. I mean, we have to be clear about how much hard work there is in, in doing this.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that's true. Here's a question from HSG: What role does C play in that diplomacy? Will anything really change until he steps away from leadership? Well, um, firstly, I don't see him stepping away from leadership. <laughs> so, <laughs> I you know I think that's a theoretical uh, question.
3: Um, yeah, uh, look, I, look. I think that for for all you know, my my complaints about him, he's clearly he's capable of diplomacy. I mean, we've seen it before. I mean, you know, uh, look at what's happened recently between China and Japan, for example. Uh, it, this wasn't all Abe reaching out and and, and you know with an olive branch. Uh, actually, really, since Trump declared a simultaneous trade war against both of the you know East Asian powers, they've they've moved very close to one another. I think they have Trump to thank for that. <laughs> um, look at right now, I mean, you know, since COVID-19 broke out, public opinion polling, if you were to do it, on attitudes toward Japan are vastly improved, right? So, it, you know, it's it's not just the United States that, that uh, I think, uh, you know, is, is a country that China needs to manage carefully its, its foreign relations with. And C is not always a spoiler in in these things, so let's let's keep that in mind.
0: He's not a comment from James Carter. What Kaiser says about people-to-people diplomacy is true, but there used to be a lot of academic and journalistic exchange in China that, for all its limitations, has been shut down, and that I think we can certainly put the blame on C. Uh, you know, the much more uh. repressive environment for NGOs, for for media, for. Uh, any kind of exchange Uh, so that's very sad
3: and and as Sylvia Frank points out there still are an awful lot of students uh Chinese students in in the U.S. although that is likely to change right now um there were 350,000 Chinese students each year studying in the United States as of last year uh Jeremy do you think COVID-19 is going to knock that number back a lot?
0: I guess it it's got it, right? Uh, not yeah. only COVID-19, but the increasingly strict um, visa, um,
3: re- you know, regime. Requirements by the United States. Yeah. And uh, by China. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, the, the whole 10 years, uh, this 10 years that we've been doing this podcast is like watching my parents fight for 10 goddamn years. I mean, I re- I'm really somebody who feels, you know, quite an attachment to both of these uh, countries and you know at the time when we started doing this this podcast, Barack Obama was the president of the United States, and Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao were you know in in charge of China, and I I felt no no hatred toward either of them. In fact, I was I was you know on balance pretty pleased with both of them. Uh, what has happened since? My god, I mean it it's it's been psychological torment for somebody like me. I freaking need therapy is what I need.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, um I think we have um medical insurance in our company. Maybe. <laughs> um, so, uh,
3: Anyone want to volunteer to be my therapist here?
0: Absolutely not. Oh my God, what a nightmare. Um, so Noah says, uh, he, uh, I'm an international student advisor in the US. We're, we're, we're expecting drastically lower numbers in the fall, but not sure about the long term. And then Wing Kai says, as someone in international education, I think the damage of COVID-19 for international student enrollment and cultural exchanges will last for years. That makes sense to me. I mean, I I, I kind of, you know, the whole world is in lockdown. Uh, I I was supposed to go to New Zealand in May for my father's 80th birthday, and that's not gonna happen. Uh, New Zealand isn't letting anybody in. Um, You know, I I, I think everybody's plans are being disrupted, and I mean, it's not just international students, travel, everything. I mean, I think this is going to last a long, long time. I don't think we should kid ourselves that anything is going to kick back to normal anytime soon.
3: Right. We've got a question about China's role in in the environment. Uh, uh, First, I would go ahead and point people to two podcasts that we've done recently, one with Alex Wong at UCLA and another that just went up yesterday, uh, that is on the 9th of April. Uh, with Barbara Finnamore, uh, who was at the Natural Resources Defense, who still is at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we talked about a book that she had written called Will China Save the Planet? Uh, and, you know, if you want a a bit of good news about China, uh, I, I highly suggest that you read that book or listen to the podcast because, you know, I mean, it, we, we started off with just some uh, pretty, frankly, stunning statistics about uh, what China has actually done toward lowering the price of renewable energy globally. Right now, two-thirds of the people in this world live in countries where the price of renewable energy is cheaper than the price of fossil fuel. And that isn't even including hydro. So the price of wind and solar is cheaper than the, the price of fossil fuel. That is entirely because of China and its, its economies of scale, its massive production of solar panels and and wind turbines so there's a lot um but i, I recommend that you re- listen to th- that podcast and uh, those two podcasts
0: did we miss okay. any questions up above i kind of lost track
3: yeah yeah i, I mean there's, there's too, too much on here um yeah a lot of comments and then ah
0: okay well he has a new one um what are your thoughts on the new york times wall street journal and washington post being kicked out of china how is the situation going to play out it's definitely going to worsen the quality of the reporting americans get yeah absolutely second you on that it's a it's a it's uh, it's very sad for those of us who like to be informed um it, <clears throat> not just americans but the whole world because uh, for better or worse the big american newspapers have the biggest had <laughs> the biggest bureaus in china and were doing uh, a lot of the you know solid groundwork that's necessary for understanding the country i don't know i i, I can't see uh, well certainly as, as long as trump is in office i can't see any kind of improvement in that um i i think it's going to be a kind of a tit for tat game and unfortunately the trump administration doesn't really care about journalism so they're not being very careful about how they approach responses to the chinese government's actions uh that's right which is sort of creating a vicious cycle um uh, you know uh, i i think that uh the western media the uh, particularly the american media in china is going to much more closely resemble the way it was 15, 20 years ago, fewer people on the ground, less information, um, but
3: we have the FT still. We have SCMP. We have a lot of other.
0: Yeah, there are uh, a lot of other you know,
3: sources. It is it's absolutely tragic. I mean, and I fully fully denounce uh, this retaliatory you know move by China. I think it's just a terrible terrible idea, um, and I you know obviously. Donald Trump is not going to leap to the defense of the failing New York Times or whatever. I mean, he's, he's, he's not going to, to lift a finger to help, uh, you know. None of these three media organizations that were targeted are are exactly favorites. Now, if, if Murdoch was, was kicked out, maybe, you know, Trump would do something about it. But that ain't going to happen.
0: Well, I mean, Murdoch owns the Wall Street Journal.
3: Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, Fox, right? Is what I mean, right?
0: Right. <clears throat> yeah, I. Uh, it's a it's a tough one. I. It's I don't know where we're going with this. It's not. What yet. is the
3: likelihood, Jeremy, that either of us moves back to China? Oh, We got a question from HSG on that.
0: Um, I will not move back to China.
3: Uh, I, I probably will at some point. Um, I mean, I think it depends on on the political situation there between China and the United States. Right now, I mean, um, it's a choice between uh, competence. I mean, I think I think that a lot depends on what happens in November too. Um, if we if we're you know if we continue to slide down this slope of of, of you know xenophobia of of racism of you know petulant petty nationalism uh and populism here i uh, I would take the oppressive competence of china over over this, so I'm certainly considering it my wife certainly wants to move back i mean to her, this is just sort of a a temporary sojourn while the uh the kids are in school <laughs> yeah
0: um <laughs> yeah. Uh, the second part of that question was how different would your lives be then compared to your time before in China I mean China is a very different place from the place it was for most of the time I was living there Um, and you know I I don't particularly like the way it's become to be honest Um, uh, so I think it would be very different. Um, some of the nice parts of living in it were perhaps because it was less developed and, and poorer, to be honest, that you know, China was very receptive to um, foreigners and foreign ideas. So, I mean, certainly for me, as somebody who's not ethnically Chinese, it, it was a more welcoming environment uh, than there is now. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of why Jeremy? Why wouldn't I move back to China?
3: Yeah, I think you just uh you just you just answered that. Okay. Um
0: and somebody says come back Kaiser. So
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean I very well might. Um one of the problems of course is that when I was living in China, you know, for maybe the first 10 years, uh, even as somebody who was just sort of scraping by on uh, by American standards, I was still pretty well off For the last ten years, you know, I had fairly good paying jobs in in my last six years at Baidu, I had a you know very well paying job. Uh, so I could live a decent life. Now, if I went back to China unless I you know were to um, to have a significant cost of living adjustment, it would be pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty tough to, to to get by. I would certainly never be able to to afford to buy property there now. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. Um, I've been trying to talk Fanfan Fan into if we do go go back to not living in Beijing or or Shanghai, but maybe going Chengdu. You know. Yeah, that's that's what I'm pushing for. Chengdu.
0: Chengdu is where you want to be.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I, if we if we if we move back to China, it would be Chengdu, actually. That's starting to sound quite appealing. Maybe I will move back to China. Um, <laughs> so Doug says, a lot of complaints on China. I'm with you on seeing the negative developments for the last 10 years, especially for foreigners living here. But what gives you hope and what do you think has changed for the positive?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a long list of uh, for that. I mean, but Jeremy, I think it's more interesting to hear from you. Are there things that you still think are, are positive?
0: Um... Hmm. Um,
3: Oh, surely.
0: (laughs) I mean, I I, I think uh, one of the things that always gives me a lot of energy is the entrepreneurial energy of of people in China. uh, And the ability to maintain a kind of optimistic worldview, no matter what, you know, is hitting the farm. Right, and I I think that perhaps you know gives me hope. Uh, Ch- Chinese people, I don't you know, my my, my parents-in-law who are Chinese um, uh, live with us now, um, and everybody in America is freaking out about this quarantine. And my mother-in-law was like, you know what? I, I was in the countryside for six years in the Cultural Revolution, and. We were eating bark. Like, it's cool. We'll
1: cope.
0: <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> right. This, I think, that aspect of Chinese people is cool. You know, nanchu the, the, um, cool. You know, you can eat bitterness. You can tolerate hardship, and you can still, amazingly, even though the world is completely kicking you in the head all the time, maintain some kind of optimism and hope for the future. I would say perhaps that would be my greatest hope and joy in China is that uh, this is a country with a culture that is in some ways set up for success in adversity.
3: That's very well put. And I think I, I would totally share that uh, that buoyancy, that optimism that, that they get from that. That uh, Also, you know, the relationship, I think, with technology, I, I kind of like that better in China than, than I do here. Um
0: why? That, what,
3: what's better about it? Well, I, I think that there's sort of this still unembarrassed embrace of the idea of technologically driven better futures. I think that uh, they put their money where their mouth is on this. That there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, go to work every day believing that they're going to uh, to solve real world problems, and, and we've seen that happening in, in China over the last, you know, twenty years. It's it's been phenomenal. Um, and, you know, this is directly related to what you said about the cultural entrepreneurship. Um, I also, I think that, that there's a, um, the lack of partisan rancor would be at least for a little while, really welcome. I mean, just, just the.
0: Oh, no. Give me the partisan rancor anytime. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're not into this thing. But
3: I I feel like China has sort of an admirable asabia. Uh, China has like this, this still this sort of um, connectedness to uh, a a sense of national purpose, which uh, I sometimes find refreshing. And what comes with that are some of the, you know, it comes up tied to a lot of things that you just you talked about this you know ability to eat bitterness people are not a bunch of whingers right you don't just there isn't as much just
0: yeah america is a very whingy country i have to agree with that now now that right. i've lived here for a few years it's people whinge about nonsense Look, I, all of the I, time. I take
3: mental health issues seriously and i was just talking about getting therapy for my you know superpower conflict um dilemma but i i think that you know I don't encounter people in China who are constantly talking about, you know, uh, depression or anxiety. Uh, it's it's a, a very different kind of people are made of maybe a, a different sterner stuff. And sometimes I do miss that.
0: So here is a question or a comment from Shellos. Two weird leaders, Xi and Trump, are leading the biggest two powers of the world. Low-income white workers got Trump elected, and Trump blames China for taking work from those white lower classes as a result of globalization. This is a global trend. I get it. But Xi, is in, po- is Xi in power and acting the way he is? Why? Sure, coincidences like uh, Boise Lai's attempted coup But what are the more systemic and broader reasons for Xi's authoritarianism, I guess? Plus, even if we get rid of Xi and Trump, are we looking to go back to the old ways or are there some new directions? What new directions?
3: First of all, the answer to the last part of that, no, there's no going back, right? Uh, The best we can do is sort of scramble what's left of Humpty Dumpty into a different kind of an omelet or something, right? that 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 ship has sailed it's not going to be restored to what it was like I think I maybe clung to a hope that it might you know go back to pre two thousand and eight for a brief moment there but I, i'm I've disabused myself of of that i think um but the question that you're at, at is at the heart of this is something that has centrally preoccupied me for the whole last ten years since we've been doing this is why did the illiberal turn happened, and it's not just C, as Jeremy rightly pointed out. This happened, you know. He recognized this in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I think some people would go even earlier and look at, you know, the crackdown on <coughs> um, on rights defenders in two thousand six, and and say that that it, it began even earlier.
0: Yeah, two thousand six was the year of Wenming Ban- Banwang, you know, the the first like real internet cleanup campaign.
3: Sure, sure so i um, so what brought this about um I, so I would take the real i I really think that it happened you know around the time of the of the crisis and I have a, a long elaborate theory that I don't have time to go into uh right now but I think that we cannot ignore uh, what American action whether it was coordinated or not and I tend to think that it was not what it looked like from Beijing. We have a terrible abil- inability to exercise what's called security dilemma sensibility. We don't understand uh, what our behavior looks like from across the table. And what it looked like from Beijing uh, was threatening. It did look like, uh, you know, America had quite hostile designs, especially after 2008. Uh, and in spite of Obama, you know, saying repeatedly that it is in the American interest to have a strong, wealthy, prosperous, and stable China. Uh, it did not look like that from from for most people in Beijing, uh, and this has been a recurrent theme on the show. You can hear me talk about this uh, on you know a dozen different episodes. But uh, I think that to lay the feet uh, to lay all the, the the blame for this entirely at Beijing's feet is just simply I, I think that that's hubristic and, and simply wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I disagree with you about the extent of that, but fair enough. So um, HSG, any chance of bringing back the Dunway hard hat show, talking to folks yeah. in Tennessee about China? That's a good idea, thank you. I, I I will consider that. It's, although, I don't know, you know, talking to people in Tennessee about China is,
3: 就是。Uh, <laughs>
0: Anyway, um can either of you think of anything positive to say about the future of the US-China relationship.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that um I think there's a, a very plausible scenario in which we hit bottom. We look right now we've had a preview into what the decoupling that so many people people are clamoring for will actually look like. And what does it look like? It looks like a precipitous economic decline. It looks like disruption in our in uh, in in our uh, supply chains that that damages uncountable numbers of industries in the United States. So we might get what we we wished for and then realize that that's not sustainable. And so I think that we might hit bottom and and begin the the, the road to recovery.
0: Yeah. So, Roger, where how is Sufe these days? Sufei is in L.A., uh, in Los Angeles. Um, yeah, three, Smacker. Two kids, three, if, three we two. Could, if we could find Smacker again, that would be a really great show. Huh? <laughs> can you say anything about the new left in China? Uh, is Jude Blanchett still on the call? Because yeah. if anyone can talk about the new left in China, I think it would be him.
3: Yeah, I mean, he'd be great dude? on it. I, I don't see him on here, I so he's, I, I
0: think he slipped off. Okay,
3: yeah, he's a busy guy; he's got stuff to do. Oh. Uh, look, I can talk a little bit about the new left. I mean, it's 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 not an easy uh,
0: and person to person diplomacy between leftists, uh, Audrey. I'm not sure if you mean internationally.
3: Uh, yeah, that I don't know anything about. <laughs> um, I, I I don't know. Um, there are plenty of people I, I can point you to who can talk to you about that. But um, the new left is is First of all, I would say it's not what most people think it is. Uh, the new left sort of grew uh, out of a lot of people who were sort of simultaneously disillusioned with a lot of what was happening uh, in terms of uh, imbalances in the Chinese economy and in 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 uh, uh, the environmental damage that was happening during the Jiang and Wen and Hu era. Uh, some of the principles of this, people like what you know, like uh, like uh, uh, Wang Hui, were actually themselves dissidents at one point. They were, he was a participant in the '89 protests, uh, and then studied abroad. Um, and w- their leftism is um, sort of more akin to uh, leftism as we understand it in the United States than we under than leftism in a Chinese context. Uh, that's maybe the easiest way I could say it. They're really interested, you know, actually in the rights of the working class in income inequality, in environmental issues. Uh, their critique is not so much of the statist pieces of uh, part of, of, of China, which they're often quite supportive of, but of the neoliberal uh, aspects of China in the reform era. Uh, that That's probably a pretty s- succinct explanation of their ideology, yeah. They're great. I mean, again, uh, reading The China Dream has a lot on them, uh, and you can read that. I would also point you to the works by Mark Leonard from the European Council on Foreign Relations, who's written quite a bit about uh, China's new left. All right. Should we get to recommendations, Jeremy? Mm? Should we move to recommendations?
0: Uh, Okay. Um...
3: Let me first say thank you jeremy for 10 years of a fabulous partnership man i mean I, yeah I,
0: thank I've you just,
3: uh, i've really enjoyed this and um you know somebody was asking jesse was asking earlier about working with you and whether that's been hard i gotta say you I'm know sure of it's course, been
0: very hard nobody who works with me <laughs> finds it easy <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: nothing's easy but uh but you know jeremy you're one of my best friends and i've always you know loved and and respected everything uh, that that you've done in I, I it's just been a total joy working with you ten years. Likewise, here's likewise. 10 more.
0: Thank you. Here's the ten more. So my recommendation then is uh, an interview on NPR, which with Terry Gross, who I don't usually like very much, actually as an interviewer, uh, but uh, it's with Stephen King, the novelist, and it's called Stephen King is sorry you feel like you're stuck in a Stephen King novel, uh, and it's basically his <laughs> take on you know, the times we're living in and other stuff. And it's uh, uh, about 40 minutes long. Uh, It's on the NPR website.
3: That's a great recommendation. I will check it out. Um, I'm gonna recommend two essays, very different, but both about COVID-19. One is in in the New York Review of Books. It's uh, by a literature professor at Fairfield University in Connecticut. the essay is called "Fearing for My Mother in Wuhan, Facing a New Sinophobia in the U.S." and it really touched me. I, I her name is Shao. You know what? I, I've suddenly spaced her name. Shao. I almost said Shao li but that's not right. Shao <laughs> yeah,
0: right. right. ji Wei, I think. Shao ji Wei. Yeah. Wei. Right. Shao Wei. I don't, I know, don't
3: know, know the tones. Yeah. Uh, but her, it's probably Shao. And, uh, the essay is just great. It's, it's personal, uh, very deeply personal about, you know, her mother who is in the lockdown city of Wuhan and about the experience of being, you know, in a Chinese person in America as, uh, the ravages of COVID-19, uh, American shores and, uh, uh, that response. And it was just, it, it, it's so familiar to me, uh, even though I had no, you know, mother living in lockdown in, 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 in China, uh, it, it's just fantastic. I highly recommend it to absolutely everyone. Uh, the other is an essay by Adam Tooze, uh, who is one of the people, I think, who understands the global economy best and writes about it most lucidly. Um, it's I, I just can't recommend it more highly. It's in the London Review of... Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, right. it's in the London Review of Books. And I think that it's probably the clearest explanation of... How the economic uh, situations have been impacted by COVID nineteen in the three centers of production of finance of 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 economic power uh, that is the the United States China and the Eurozone each of them have their own particular pathologies each of them have their own you know sort of comorbidities right that that left them susceptible in in their own way but um, he ends up basically saying that you know given that choice between trying to sort of stave off the pain and extend it uh and wait it out or taking all the pain up front as china did the obviously better choice was to take the pain up front to uh you know in in the most draconian fashion to to squash the disease and then uh build the economy back to take the economic pain up front uh it's just a very compelling article it's uh, around 4500 words long take you half an hour to read but Uh, you'll not spend a better half an hour uh, if you really want to educate yourself on the economic impact of this.
0: (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) David Moser just commented in the chat. My wife just saw Jeremy on the screen with the Oval Office backdrop and said, oh, have the terrorists taken over the White House?
3: (laughs) 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 <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. That's funny. Um, All right, just right. One more Congrats. recommendation
0: before we go, like on okay. the theme of like you know being in China, being in the US, and watching China. We, we published a, a a short piece by um, a gentleman named Yang Zouyi or Zouyi Yang. My family survived the lockdown in Wuhan. Now it's my turn in New York, which is also right. a, a pretty good read on sub China. It's on the homepage right now.
3: <laughs> all right hey um, thank you for not speaking French too much on, on this You've, you've kept I don't think I
0: swore beat. once uh,
3: a couple of times okay of times. Uh-huh. anyway uh, congrats man we made it 10 years yeah we did right.
0: what is that a paper anniversary or
3: <laughs> it's the Twitter anniversary Twitter anniversary uh, th- thanks thanks everyone for joining us on Zoom and thank you all listeners for tuning in uh, and uh, you know We'll
0: make. um, We're gonna keep making these shows. We're we're gonna try and make a kind of a uh, an edited version of this. Um, We'll see how that goes. Um, Sort of (laughs) a a kind of video podcast thing. Okay. So, but thank you very much. And there's a bunch of links and stuff in the chat uh, channel, and we will uh, try to post this with all the links at some point very soon.
3: Um, Indeed. Indeed. All right, folks. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by me, Kaiser Guo, and that guy, Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at com. follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News, and make sure to check out all the other shows in our network. Thank you for listening. Everyone stay safe, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and we will see you next week and if you hated
0: what we did today please email me and tell me what you hated
3: yeah don't 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 email me i'm more thin-skinned than jeremy the rhinoceros (laughs) (laughs)
0: all
3: right folks adios
0: adios